Hello listeners, I'm Ray Carter. And I'm Olivia Franklin. And thanks for tuning in to Normal Conversations. With this podcast, we wanted to offer a space for free-flowing conversation about all things to do with the normal festival of the brain themes for this year. Those themes are knowing versus growing, power and touch. We're featuring conversations related to the festival's themes via people's stories, experiences, enlightenments, dreams, knowledge, and much more. For this episode, rather than a conversation between two people, we'll be listening to an extended conversation in a more formal setting. It's about the neurology of power, and it's called Wellness in a Pandemic. It was recorded live as part of What Next as one of their UK-wide discussions in January 2021, but it began at a normal festival event back in October 2020. The conversation is led by cultural thinker Susanna Lane, who speaks with LA-based physician in family medicine Dr Joy Jones, also with functional neurologist Dr Jerome Lube from Atlanta, and more locally our festival neurologist and neuroscientist Tim Rittman. Enjoy. I'm going to jump straight in. We've got three questions um, that I'm going to ask to um, our speakers, and then we're going to think about it in top tips. So anyone that writes essays know that you always sort of start wide. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to think about the brain. And one of the biggest things that I learned during my research is that we think of ourselves um, that our brains work forward. And so by that, I mean, we think that we, we, we have a problem and we, we look out and we use new things to solute it, to, to, to give that solution. Here's what actually happens. Our brains are predictive. So uh, a question to you, Tim, can you just explain what that means, that our brains are predictive? And especially in the context of um, a pandemic, why is that useful to know? Um, and I think you've probably got about a minute and a half. Yeah, that's great. Um, hi, Suzanne. We sort of, uh, I think sometimes we um, we look at ourselves and we think we're influenced by um, lots of things from the outside. You know, we try and we try and do something. We're responding to something when we sort of look at the world. We're sort of seeing what's around us, and that's that's partly true. But actually, um, our brains have this sort of internal model um, of of what the world looks like, um, and what we do is sort of update that model based on. Um, on what we see around us. So I think we're all sort of familiar with the concept of sort of feedback loops. So you, 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 you do something and then something um, you know, comes back and influences and it sort of, it, it, works, its, um, it works its way around. Um, so what the brain works in a slightly different way. So the brain starts saying, well, this is what I think is, is, is going on. Um, so um, for example, if you're gonna kick a football, um, your brain has a model saying, well, I'm no, I think I know how much power I've got to use to kick that football, you know, into the goal that's in front of me, for example. Um, so I'm going to um, apply this much power to that muscle and kick the ball and hopefully it'll go in this direction. So that's what, what the brain starts with. When we kick the ball and actually it goes, it goes wide, we think, well, okay, I didn't get that quite right. So the brain then will update that model and think, well, next time um, I'm going to kick the ball slightly differently. Um, and it sort of updates that sort of internal representation of all our muscle movements, basically. And it's the same with other things as well. Um, when we think about, you know, how we think about, you know, a certain political situation, for example, we have an internal 
um, picture of, of what the world is like. Um, and we sort of update that based on the information that's around us. Um, so, you know, when, you, when we come into a pandemic, say, well, we have um, a way that we um, picture the world and a way that we, uh, that we look at the world. We might think, we might see the world as a, um, you know, based on our past experiences, as a, as a place where there are lots of friends and lots of community and it's a very social place and we support each other. Um, and it's certainly, you know, I look at my, the village where I live here and people have been supportive and organizing help for those in need and so on. And that's a very positive outlook on the world. You may, you may start looking at the world saying, well, actually it's a very frightening place. Um, there's lots of scary things out there. Um, there's lots of things which could kill me when I walk out the door, you know, there's cars going past, there's deadly viruses. And so that's gonna color the way that you um, respond to the pandemic um, and the virus. And things that we, that we read and look at and experiences that we have, have had over the past year, um, I think will shape the way that we, um, uh, that we under, understand that, um, uh, understand the world and, and that informs our response to the, uh, to the pandemic, I think. So, and there's lots, of, there's lots of mechanisms within the brain for sort of fine tuning and learning um, uh, you know, from our experiences and updating that internal model that we have. Brilliant, thank you. So I think for me that was just useful because I was like, oh, okay, so those times when I just assume that I'm thinking differently, actually I'm not. And so just knowing that in a pandemic, I feel is quite interesting. I'm gonna just switch up slightly and I'm going to move on to the second question. So Joy, I'm coming to you. Um, and so, Another thing that we sort of learned from our previous talk was that as humans, we can sometimes do reasonably well when we know how long something is going to last. So for me, if I know that um, I have to, I don't know, have my, have my favourite cousin in my flat for three weeks, but they snore in the next door bedroom and I can't sleep. If that's three weeks, my body and my brain is actually quite well suited to that. But actually, what we're not so well suited for as human beings is that we don't know how long something's going to ask to last. So I don't think I have to give you a context of why that's useful in the pandemic. But I am going to um, ask um, Joy and Jerome, uh, so Joy first and then Jerome, to give their kind of view, yours from a psychiatric perspective and your wholeness perspective, though they both integrate, and Jerome from a functional neurologist perspective. Why is that and how is that useful to know and what can we do in the pandemic? Well, I would say from a psychiatric standpoint, it usually comes down to an idea of hope. If you're able to hold on to an idea of hope in the midst of whatever it is you're experiencing. Um, I have the privilege of working with people who are incarcerated. And when I look at the, the inmates that do better, they're the ones that are able to create some sense of normalcy, some sense of structure, some sense of control in the midst of this environment where everything is controlling them. And I think that we can take some insight from that because we are all in the midst of you know, mass pandemonium and there's so much unrest and instability. But what I think is that if we can create our own space, we can create uh, our schedules 
just finding ways to really like pour into ourselves and create some normalcy, it definitely helps our brain. Um, it goes into, it goes back to kind of what Tim was talking about and that the brain is always trying to say, okay, how, how much do I have to give to put, to kick this ball or to endure whatever it is we're about to uh, go through. So if you can say, you know what brain, we're gonna be okay. Guess what? We're gonna do this and we're gonna do that. Your brain's like, oh, okay. All right, we're we're calm, we're cool, we can get through this, and it'll be much it'll be much easier for you to kind of endure whatever is is ahead of you. I think. And over to you, Jerome. Uh, thank you. Um, I, I I completely agree with what uh, Dr. Jones and, and Dr. Rittman are saying. Yeah, I think when we're looking at the situation that is happening with the pandemic, and I live in Atlanta, Georgia. And Atlanta, Georgia has been on the map as the epicenter for a lot of the political conversation in the States. Um, one of the analogies or kind of the metaphors that I would use is to think about what it would like, what it would be like when we used to be able to go to restaurants, right? What it would be like if you're running a restaurant and you start to have more people coming in than you could handle. It doesn't necessarily mean that you aren't having a life-giving encounter. It doesn't necessarily mean that you aren't enjoying yourself. But the reality is, is the brain is trying to figure out what are my resources? How long can I do this? How effectively can I do it for? And at some point you are going to run out of resources. So if your brain perceives that happening in the first hour of a 12 hour shift, it's gonna be a very, very hard rest of the day. If it feels like it's run out of resources and staff and all of the things that you need to be able to do to survive for the week, it's going to respond very differently. On the other side of that, if you're a patron that's walked into the restaurant and you think it's going to be a five minute wait and it becomes a two hour wait, your experience with that is going to be vastly different. Uh, so why I mention that is obviously it's, it sounds like a kind of a casual experience to go, well, what is it like to run out of food at the restaurant? But if you take the experience that we're having and the stress that happens of going, do I have enough to actually make it through this event? Like Dr. Jones is saying, this is a question of, well, when, at what point does hope deferred make the heart sick? At what point does it become something like a patient myself for over 20 years going, I don't see a potential of feeling better. And now all of a sudden it feels like you're going to actually run out of whatever it is that you need. Now, what happens if what you need is relationship or finances or connection or food? or the opportunity to be able to get hired if you come out of incarceration. Like all of these things are survival techniques. Um, and a really easy way to distill that is the, I, one, I recommend everybody reads Viktor Frankl's work in the Man's Search for Meaning. I think there are a few books that do a better job of helping us to understand what it looks like to survive the un, uh, an unsurvivable, uh, incomprehensible kind of situation. Um, but a really easy way to think about it based on what um, Dr. Rittman was mentioning as well, is to ask yourself three questions. How strong is this experience? How long is it going to last? And how often does it happen? The brain really defines its response based on intensity, frequency, and duration. And intensity is how strong is it? Frequency is how often does it happen? And duration is how long it's gonna last. Because if you have that increased awareness about one or all three of those questions, your approach to how many people you let in the door at the restaurant is going to vastly change. And your approach at how often you keep going to work if you ran out of gas months ago is also going to change. So how, how, how often, how long, and how strong can at least frame out the question of what do I do next in terms of my internal and external engagement? And that can sometimes help as well. 
Brilliant, thank you. So uh, question three, I'm going to uh, mash up a little bit. And Tim, I think you're prepared for me to just ask you, we're gonna bring in this idea of my favorite thing at the moment is neuroplasticity. And Tim, you were just gonna give us a real layman's idea of what neuroplasticity in the brain is. Yeah, so there's, yeah, there's <laughs> lots of levels that you can think about um, neuroplasticity. Um, so if you think about it at the very basic level, you know, the brain's made up of um, neurons um, and they connect to each other uh, by synapses um, and um, they have little, uh, little dendrites, which are, which are bits that come off the, um, the, 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 the axon, which is the, the long bit. So there's a bit, of, a bit of molecular biology here, but you have this sort of cell body, the long axon that wiggles off the, the that cell body, and that's what makes up your neur neuron. And then little dendrites, which are little spines that come off that, that axon, which connects to, to other neurons. And it's those, those sort of connections which, um, which change and come and go. Um, uh, and uh, particularly those little dendritic spines that have connections to other um, other brain cells. So at the very sort of basic level, that's um, that, that's how it, how it changes. But then um, the sort of next um, level up, I mean, the brain is um, organised into into networks. So you know, your neurons will talk to each other um, and they'll have conversations. So populations of, of neurons will get together and have a chat with each other, um, and um, and they will have conversations with other um, groups of neurons the other side of the brain. So you can then um, build, it sort of starts to build up a sort of pattern of conversations across the brain. And we call those brain networks. Um, um, so at one level, your neuroplasticity is actually fine tuning and changing those um, brain networks and the, those patterns of, of conversations and, uh, across the brain. Um, and yeah, so that's, uh, you know, as Jerome does a lot of um, rehabilitation and what, you know, what we're trying to do with rehabilitation is to uh, reprogram and reorganize those networks to be, firstly, to make connections where they, where they should be um, and to, um, to work in a more efficient manner. Um, so we know that people who are, you know, uh, better educated, for example, or have more social interactions, um, they're not, they don't have necessarily more connections but they have better organized um, connections. Um, so the brain works more, more efficiently. Um, and you know, we used to, to sort of say that, um, you know, that things are fairly static in the brain. Um, but go on, Susan, you had a question. Yeah, no, sorry, you were just- Sorry, that's just that, that about to ask you about this, it being static and, and now not. Yeah, well, I think a good example, you know, as a, as a neurologist, we used to say to people, well, after you've had a stroke, you know, your brain will sort of recover for about a year or so, but then that's going to be it. It'll stay static after that. What we now realise that even after something as devastating as a stroke, up, at, up to 10 years afterwards, we can still see the brain recovering and changing and that plasticity um, taking place to reorganise um, the brain um, and to make it more efficient. So this is something which is ongoing during life and the whole of life and even after um, brain injury, and maybe particularly after brain injuries, that's when this, um, this plasticity is, is most noticeable. Brilliant. Thank you. And so the reason why I wanted to bring that in in the context of a pandemic is that what that means is that if you go back to what um, Jerome and Tim and Joy were talking about, although our brains are predictive, we do have those, those notions of control. And actually, we once thought in simple terms, once you got to an adult, 
that was it. Now we know actually we, we do have some control and we can make change. And that moves me on very smoothly to our, to our last question, which is addressed to Jerome, which is this idea, um, Jerome, um, of what happens when we do go into a panic. Now, you and I had that conversation more around uh, diversity and what happens when people are trying to make change. But actually, it sits really well with this idea of, of, of well-being. So we're in a panic and what's happening. And, and it's really that idea of, you know, you talked about the bear. So can you tell us a little bit about that in maybe just a couple of minutes so we can stay on time? Sure, absolutely. Um, one of the things uh, for those of you who've never um, heard that reference of the bear that um, Susanna and I have chatted about is a phrase that I use is that your brain can't tell the difference between a bear and a deadline. So if you're running late for a flight, your body is going to physiologically and literally respond the same way as if you're in an active life-threatening situation. Uh, and if we've seen the past 10 months alone, uh, especially the last week and a half from, for us that live in the States, um, the idea of what is and is not life-threatening is very, very plastic, it changes. Um, so why I say that is one of the things, a, a bullet point, kind of a sticky statement that's sometimes helpful to think through this is to understand your own level of resilience. And what I mean by resilience is my definition of resilience is knowing the difference between discomfort and trauma. And the difference between discomfort and trauma is the length of time for recovery. So the way that our brains work is 100% of the time, as soon as we encounter a situation, our brain is going to ask the question first and foremost, am I going to survive? And to what degree do I need to respond in order to survive? So going back to the restaurant, for instance, if you see a group of 20 people walk in the door and you know you don't have enough to make that work, does your brain think I'm going to die or my business will die or my reputation will die as a result of this? And is it able to find the faculty and the capacity to take a deep breath and go, we can make it through this? So it sounds trivial, but you know the thing is, is when we're looking on the news stations, which there are many on, on both sides of, of, of the ocean here, uh, your brain, we have to first and foremost understand that when our brain sees somebody reporting something to us, our brain is asking, am I going to be able to survive what happens? So being able to quickly recognize if it is not an actual life-threatening situation, it is not an actual life-threatening situation. Because for many of us, we may have been in a life-threatening situation and our response absolutely and understandably so has to be different. But for me, for instance, it's, um, it's 4.01 a.m. where I am. I have three kids that are five and under that are asleep. <laughs> And they're brilliant. They sleep really, really well. If for some reason I have anxiety about waking them up and then I have to manage that in the midst of this conversation and I don't get into a space where I realize that's uncomfortable, but it's not traumatic. I will recover from that. And an easy question a lot of patients ask me is, well, how long is an appropriate recovery time? And here's a really safe way to understand it. If it hurts for seven days or less, it is not trauma. If it hurts for seven days or longer, your body is taking a lot of work to get through it. We should be sore after a hard workout. If we're not, we haven't really done a significant amount of exercise that builds stamina. So as quickly as possible, being in a space where we can reconcile that, that moment, that conversation, that news story that we saw, or that encounter that we had with a person may have really hurt. It may have been really uncomfortable, but was it life-threatening and can I recover Am I gonna forget about it in two days? 
because if you try not, if you don't reconcile things that did hurt for an extended period of time, then your body's going to hold on to those pieces. And, you know, we've got some great experts here that can help to connect that, but reconciling things that are really deep, painful moments are really important, but also not over committing to things that aren't trauma is going to help your brain to make sure that it doesn't inappropriately use the resources that it needs for when it really does have to make that kind of journey to recover from something significant. So knowing discomfort versus trauma and simply saying, if it's not a bear, it's not a bear. Thank you so much. Um, I think one of the challenges when I was trying to plan this out with the help of Elizabeth and Lizzie was that this, I could have just sat and listened to uh, our three speakers for at least 10 hours and we really just touched the surface. privilege to be able to listen to Suzanne, Joy, Jerome and Tim talk about our brain's incredible adaptability. You can find links to Suzanne's work and information about the other speakers in the episode description. How did the talk inform, inspire or challenge you? We'd love to hear your thoughts and reflections. For me, I think it did all three, um, but mostly I think it inspired me. The conversation honestly helped me level out my own internal questioning that I've that I've kind of been riddling myself with at, at the minute um, and questioning you know why do I suddenly feel anxious for no apparent reason and the conversation helped me approach this by explaining it um, and then further enabling me to, to let go of it and it explained it in the sense for me through its use of scenarios in the context of the pandemic and how, from how I perceive the conversation, how these thoughts that I'm having is happening because our survival techniques are mm. less close to us, i.e. the ability to measure how often, how long and how strong, which, mm. are, which I think I, I want to riff to myself, you know, when I'm feeling <laughs> that way. Yeah. Um, and when I'm feel when I'm feeling anxious, um, and it and it helped me let go of this, um, and then it, it further allowed me to let go of it, also because the speakers matched this worry with a, a real sense of certainty, um, in saying that, you know, now we know that we can make change and we can have control um, of these thoughts, and they did that through tips. Um, but tips that were backed up through science. So we can, through this time, I think, understand our own resilience better. Mm. And I think a quote I'd like to take away from it as well, um, which resonated with me, is how we centre our well-being. And that is a process that I definitely experienced when listening to this conversation. What about you, Ray? Yeah, for me, I it made me think about all of it was really interesting. I kind of zeroed in the end of it, um, where 
although it's come up before and I've seen it said before and it comes from a lot of uh, you from a lot of sort of mainstream outlets of looking after your brain and taking care of your yes. mind yeah. um, but thinking about taking care of your brain in a really physical way and in a really real way and the the things that you can do to like very materially take care of your brain was a little bit of a wake up call for me it was kind of exciting for me even though it's like it's not it wasn't new information you know stuff like drinking water or stuff like doing things so that your brain can be healthy um but i think having the emotional impact of physical changes really kind of spoken out to me the way that dr joy jones did it really it made it feel real and it, and it made it feel like something i cared to do um and then also i found about the conversation that was really interesting was this discussion about trauma and about yes. discomfort versus trauma and i found it really interesting because i think there are lots of different ways to define well i guess there is a medical there is sort of a scientific side a uh, psychological way to define trauma and what trauma is and then there's also a kind of subjective personal way to do, to define what trauma is and what being hurt is to to hear trauma described as having such a specific duration of of hurt like you know if it's if it's under a week it's discomfort and if it's over a week and if it lasts longer than it's trauma i found that really curious because i was like huh i don't agree and then i was like well what does that mean um and it was interesting for me to start thinking about how we sort of define our personal experiences and what what can be traumatic and what can be hurtful and how to recover from hurts and like what stays with you and what what do you let go of and is that a choice or does that is that how how pain works um yeah i it was it was something to grapple with i think is really valuable definitely in a challenge also mm a challenge to grapple with yeah and i i also noted down that something i found challenging about it was what you can do physically and also the physical amount of time Mm. as well that you talk that you talk of is brought to the surface um and it, and it's just it, it's it's a new way of thinking in a way that that might be uncomfortable mm. but i guess that unites us at the same time mm. whether you have a comment about what you just had an idea that sprouted from listening a conversation you'd like to happen or a conversation of your own to submit we'd love to hear from you get in touch at normal@livingwords.org.uk which we'll be sure to put in the episode description shout out to the wonderful Anil Sebastian for letting us feature his music make sure to check out his awesome work and portfolio over at anilsebastian.com we'll be back with our next conversation very soon stay tuned on social media Subscribe to Normal Conversations on your app of choice or check the Normal Fest website to know when the next one's coming out. And finishing the episode today, if you'd like to learn more after listening with us, Susanna Lane has some useful pointers about her work for you to take away. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to hear the longer live podcast that me, Joy, Jerome and Tim 
also recorded for Normal Festival of the Brain, please just jump across to their catch-up session on the website, normalfest.co.uk. And if you want to find out more about Neurology of Power, my own research project that asks where does power reside in the brain and how can it help regular folk like us, follow me on my socials, which are Suzanne underscore Aline for Twitter and Instagram. And just in case you don't know how to spell my name, it is S-U-Z-A-N-N-E underscore A-L-L-E-Y-N-E. Look forward to chatting more soon.